I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome back to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, coming at you from Atlanta, Georgia. And the U.S. Open is underway, so I hope you guys are all enjoying the great tennis. We had some amazing qualies matches, and now the main draw is happening, and I mean, I can't call it yet. I don't know if any of you have predicted your winners. I will actually be in New York at the Open starting Wednesday, September 6th. I'll be there through Saturday, September 9th, really focusing on the Collegiate Invitational event as well as the Junior U.S. Open. So if you're around the grounds, I hope you'll tweet at me or message me or text me and Let's find a time to connect and say hello. I am so excited to bring y'all this week Craig O'Shaughnessy of The Brain Game. He is a tactical and strategic wizard when it comes to the game of tennis. And Craig has been hired by all the slams, by uh, several different publications to talk about and write about the game of tennis from a tactical, from a data-driven standpoint. And we all know the numbers don't lie. So I'm excited for you all to hear from Craig. Um, he's He's got some really interesting approaches to how our juniors should be developed, how they're on-court time should be spent and how our coaches should be working with our kids to take them to their highest potential. So I'm, I'm excited for you all to hear from him. And also, just as a reminder, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Parenting Aces podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or iHeartRadio or wherever you like to listen. We love our subscription numbers to go up. And also, if you could share the podcast with your tennis friends, the more the merrier around here. And we all need to work together to do a better job at parenting our tennis kids as they come up through the junior and college ranks and even into the pros. So please feel free to share the podcast with everybody via your own social media. And with that, I will be quiet and let you all enjoy the lovely Australian accent and the incredible information from Craig O'Shaughnessy. Welcome, Craig O'Shaughnessy, to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm so happy to have you with us finally. Lisa, thank you very much. I'm here in New York uh, getting ready for the U.S. Open, and it's great to connect with you as well. Well, by the time this thing airs, uh, the U.S. Open will be underway, and uh, you will have a new product that has launched, and we're going to get into that a little later. But I wanted to just give you an opportunity to talk about your background in tennis and growing up in Australia and how you got involved in the sport. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, tennis was a very big part of my life. Probably starting around 12, I played a lot of different sports and then I started focusing on tennis and I was the kid that was at the courts every day and playing a million sets. I wish I had have had more lessons as a younger kid to really make my technique a little bit better and stronger, but um, you know what, I, I didn't, but I did play a ton of sets and kind of learnt you know, how to play the sport and, and the competition of the sport. So I uh, played on grass courts in Australia growing up, 
and then um, came over and played college tennis in the US and I uh, played a couple of different schools and then transferred into Baylor University in Waco, Texas and graduated from there with a uh, degree in journalism. So after school, do I go in tennis? Do I go in journalism? It was kind of a 50-50 and I ended up staying in tennis. And for about 20 years, I didn't really write anything from the journalism side. Right out of high school in Australia, I actually worked at a newspaper for about a year and a half. So uh, I, I went away from that. And then um, I think it was back around the 2012 US Open, I got a call from the New York Times looking for some data on the serve. And I ended up writing that article for them and writing a lot more and um, really combined my passion for tennis and journalism together into my website and into the blog that I have and making these products uh, of what I'm doing now. So I'm, uh, for the most part, I'm off the court. I, you know, I've been a coach on the court all my life. I've taught a million hours to, you know, young kids and adults and ladies teams and all of that. You know, my, my primary income my entire life has been coaching tennis. But now it's, it's still involved in the tennis industry, but, but very much um, in the research side and the analysis side and, and, and the writing uh, side of it, which I greatly enjoy. So, um, you know, which is bringing me here to New York and, uh, and also the, the launch of the new product game plan, which is coming out next Monday. Uh, which will be yesterday when this airs. Yeah, <laughs> Not to confuse everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to travel in time. That, that's, that works. Perfect, perfect. So how did you make that switch into the numbers side of the game? Because your work is so intricate, so involved, and you're not a statistician by education. Zero. Um, you know what? I and, and people say this to me. At, you know, I speak at conferences, and they come up to me and go, "Craig, you're the stats guy. We love your stats. We love your numbers." And I'm like, "Listen, I, I don't like stats. You know, I, I almost failed math in high school. The the math side of my brain is not, you know, is not the developed side. I like to write. I like the English side of it. But as a tennis coach, whether I'm working with young players or coaching on the tour." My job is to get more wins. My job is to, you know, improve my player and develop my player. And I got very much involved in strategy and video analysis and Dartfish and other programs like that. And it, it took me down a pathway of, of breaking tennis down into, you know, we've got serving, returning, rallying, and approaching. And there's certain patterns in all of those. You know, do, is it better to serve wide? Is it better to serve down the middle? Is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? Is it better to stay back or go to the net? And all of these elements have win percentages associated to them. So in order for me to figure out which strategies are best, and, there, you know, there's a lot of different playing styles in tennis. So, you know, you've also got to modify and adapt that to the different uh, players that you're coaching. But ultimately, these patterns of play produce these percentages, and these percentages are really the language of tennis because they tell us which patterns will deliver, you know, a higher win percentage for the player. And, and that's why I got involved with it. it. It's very much from the strategy side of it than just the raw numbers or the stats of the game. You know, I'm not a stats person, I'm a strategy person, but I talk stats a lot because 
that's the language that quantifies it and, and removes the opinion and guesswork out of what we're doing as coaches. For sure. So you have this website, braingametennis.com, and for my listeners, the link will be in the show notes. And on your site, you talk a lot about, again, these stats, but specifically how they relate to strategy. And as part of, I suppose, your work around that, you are kind of going the next step in launching this new product game plan. And I would love for you to talk about what's involved in game plan and what the impetus was for the development of that particular product. Yeah, this I've got seven other products on the website. Some are singles, some are doubles, some are the mental side, some are very strategic with patterns. This is the eighth one, and this very much focuses on the player development pathway. And whether you're a national organization, um, you know, a USTA or a Tennis Australia, an IMG, you know, with academies and so forth, you know, player development is a buzzword. And, and it's, you know, we look at our young players, you know, in the 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s, then we send them to college, then they try and make the challenger level, then the, you know, top 100 and top 10. And we have never, and I repeat, never had analytics to figure out what is happening at these younger levels. A lot of what I've done so far is extracting and manipulating the data from the professional level where it's either collected by an IMG, excuse me, by an IBM or an SAP or an Infosys, one of those big data companies. Um, I've Mm -hmm. teamed up with Warren Pretorius for this project. Now, Warren has a company called Tennis Analytics, and he goes to tournaments or from the college standpoint, he's got about 50 teams that send him in matches, video of matches, and then he he does the data and sends it back to him. But what we've done from national-level tournaments, junior tournaments in the U.S., primarily U.S. and Canada, and also a conglomeration of what's happening in the college level, We've put all this data together. Now, it, it's not, it, it's done universally. It's, it's not by event. It's not by player. Um, it's done as, you know, a, a large grouping of age levels. So 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s, and then three separate levels in college tennis, which is lines five and six, lines three and four, and lines one and two. And, you know, there's around 700,000 points of tennis. In this project, there's around 21 million data points, different data points that we've looked at. And it absolutely, the goal here is to remove the opinion and guesswork from the coaching industry from what actually matters and what is actually happening in the player development pathway. So I very much want to affect the practice court. That's what this is all about, is that, I believe we practice extremely inefficiently. You know, I think the practice court is completely broken. When you look at matches at all levels of the game and you figure out what actually matters to winning and losing in those matches and you say, okay, is that being replicated onto the practice court? It almost never is. You know, our practice court is extremely focused on repetition and consistency and shot tolerance 
and ball after ball after ball. And it's simply overkill. Consistency will always be a part of our game. There's no doubt about it whatsoever. But the research has shown that the winning and losing happens at the start of the point. And, you know, as a quick example, um, when I first started looking at this at the 2015 Australian Open, I uncovered that 70% of all points on the professional tour happen in the first four shots of a rally. So that means it's only two shots for each player, a maximum of only two shots. 70% of our sport is played when a player hits a ball twice. So 20% happens in five through eight. Sorry, I was going to just stop you because that's a a huge stat to understand, right? Yes. 70% of points are one in four shots or fewer. And we as juniors, and, and I mean, I'm talking, you know, I came up through the juniors a really long time ago, but this has been going on for decades. We're taught to keep the ball in play, learn how to, you know, keep the ball in play, go for the high percentage shot. And what you're saying now is that's all well and good, but if you want to win points, you better have a big serve, a big return, and a big first ball. Yeah. Our practice court is obsessed with the end of the point, the consistency and, and the rallying. Whereas matches, the winning and losing is, you know, we, we play a front-end loaded sport. It's, you know, a, again, 70% in zero through four, 20% in five through eight, and only 10% of points are nine shots or longer. So we're spending almost 90% of our practice court practicing what happens only about 10% of the time in a match. So, you know, the organization is completely backward. Then I went a step further and I looked at, okay, where does the winning happen? Where, where do, how do players perform? So if you think of it like this, let's say we've got 100 juniors in front of us right now. And we ask them, we say, put your hand up if you won your match. All 100 kids put their hand up. So we've got a collection and a focus group of only the kids that have won their matches. Now we say to them, okay, we want to see where you went. Did you perform better than your opponent in zero through four, in five through eight, and in nine plus? So what we've found here is that over 90% of the time, so we ask the kid and say, put your hands up if you won more points when the rally was in the zero through four rally length. And over 90% of those kids will raise their hand. And on average at the Grand Slams, it's about 94%. It's almost hand in hand. It's almost given. So it shows us if you win your match, you have dominated your opponent zero through four. And then we say, okay, next one. Put your hand up if you won more points than your opponent in the five through eight rally length. And about 60% of the hands go up. And then we say, okay, put your hands up if you won more points than your opponent in nine plus. And it's around 54%. And remember, we're starting at a 50-50. And indeed, 2015 US Open ladies it was 50-50. So what we're we're discovering is that the longer a point goes, the more even it becomes. And there is is almost no advantage in the longer points. All of the winning and losing is primarily done earlier in the rally. And our practice court doesn't reflect that. 
And I mean, interestingly, you know, we in the U.S. have been so focused on, you know, the Spanish method of player development and this whole idea of training on clay so that our kids learn how to develop points and rally and are super fit to handle the long points. And what I'm hearing you say is, that's not the way. <laughs> that is not it, it, what we should it, be doing. Listen, it sounds good in theory. I mean, you, you look at the Spanish method, and it sounds good in theory. I mean, and you can say to yourself, what could possibly be wrong with being more consistent than my opponent or being fitter than my opponent or being able to put more balls in my, in, into the court than my opponent? And if you think of it like this, we give players labels on how they structure their game. So, for example, we'll call Novak Djokovic an aggressive baseliner, and Roger Federer is an all-court player. And maybe Nadal, we can call him, you know, a counter-puncher um, or, you know, a defensive baseliner or whatever, whatever you want. It's certainly a baseliner. But at the end of the day, you know, Pat Laughter a serve and volley. At the end of the day, those are all secondary labels. Every player on the planet is a first strike player first. So what I mean by first strike, when you have those three different rally lengths, it's, it's a nickname for the zero through four rally lengths. So zero through four, I call first strike tennis. Five through eight is patterns of play. And nine plus are the extended rallies. Nadal, so you look at the Spanish players, and, and I've analyzed all of them, Nadal and Ferrer and Batista are good, and Lopez, and on and on and on, down, you know, down through the ages. These guys win more points in zero through four than they do in nine plus. Nadal especially wins way more points, way more points in the zero through four rally length than he does in the nine plus rally length. So it's just, it, it sounds good in theory. It's something that you can sell it's something that you can get people to believe in, but when you look at the raw match data, it's not supported at all. So how did we get to that place where we were holding the Spanish method up as the panacea to save American tennis? Great question. Great question. So I think you have to back up just a little bit and look at other sports. This is you, In order to understand what's happened in tennis, you go to other sports. So you go to baseball and football and basketball. And these sports, first and foremost, are unified. They have a unified governing body. They have teams of people around the teams. You know, they're, they're team sports, not individual sports. And these team sports that have a unified governing body are able to spend money on the research of their game. They're able to figure stuff out, and they're all way ahead. They're all light years ahead of tennis in the research of our sport. Now, let's look at tennis. Let's look at the governing bodies. We have a ATP uh, organization. We have a WTA organization. We have an ITF organization. Then you go down to the federations, a USTA and a French federation, a German federation, an Australian federation. There's so many of them. And then you get to all the different competing tournaments and so forth. So tennis is far from unified. Tennis is an individual sport. And what has happened is we haven't shared the data. We haven't researched the data we haven't collected the data, and for the most part, 
we've used our eyes to try and figure out what matters best. Well, if you've ever seen the movie Moneyball, you quickly understand that your eyes are about the worst way to evaluate mm-hmm. a sport. Numbers yeah. are the best way to evaluate our sport. So what I started doing is looking, and again, this is very recent. 2015 is when I first really dove deep into the numbers. And, and the, the first product I launched on my website was mid-2014, 25 golden rules of single strategy. There's a lot of, a lot of analytics in there, but the big data stuff started in 2015. And I looked at what IBM was putting out because IBM are with the slams. So French Open, US Open, Australian Open, Wimbledon. They're unified there. And I looked at what they're doing. And a lot of times they're recording data, but they're, they're essentially recording insignificant data to what actually wins matches. And I saw at the bottom of this first page, they had this rally length of zero through four, five through eight, nine plus, but they didn't accumulate it for the tournament. So I got 127 match reports. I did it myself. I started learning spreadsheets of which I, you know, I I had no idea about. And I started investigating what's happening and, um, and found that, you know, everything that we think about our sport is turned on its head. The last two things that really stood out to me was the average rally length. I uncovered that the average rally length in tennis is around three and a half to four shots. So that's taking all of the long rallies and all of the short rallies, and our average is three and a half shots, three and a half to four shots. So that's a maximum of just two shots for each player. So imagine going to the practice court and going, we're going to practice our average. Serve, return, serve plus one, return plus one, grab the ball. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And what happened in my mind was I said, we actually have a new definition of consistency. Our old definition would be to hit 20 balls in a row into the court four times. The new definition, definition, definition excuse me, of consistency is to hit four balls in the court 20 times. It's been really good at the start of the point. And the last thing that kicked this really into high gear for me, again, just one of those days, you know, you're walking around or you're in the shower and you're just kind of thinking, you're like, I wonder which rally length happens the most in tennis. So we have rallies that last seven shots, 14 shots, 21 shots, all different levels. You know, the US Open, it's usually around 45 to 50 shots is the longest rally. I said, which one happens the most? Well, I looked into it, and it, it, it floored me. The number one rally length in tennis, by far, double the amount of the second highest, is a rally length of one. One wow. shot in. The serve goes in. The return does not come back in. That is the most prolific thing that happens in our sport. And then you go to the practice court, and you say, okay, how well are we practicing our serve and return? And let's just even go to the return. We hit forehands. We hit tons of forehands. We hit tons of backhands. We hit some volleys. We hit some serves. We hardly ever, ever, ever practice the return of serve. The number one rally rank in tennis ends with a missed return. So now you start to join the dots and say, hang on, what we're practicing is not helping our young kids win tennis matches. 
So to say about a player that all they are is a serve and a forehand is said with disdain. It's said Mm -hmm. as an insult. But what you're saying is the reality of that statement is that player is winning more matches than anybody else. If they're a serve and a forehand, they are far and away above the competition. Absolutely, absolutely. From from the back of the court, you know, at, at every single level, even girls' falls, we play a forehand-dominated sport. There are more winners hit there. There are more uh, forcing errors from those forehands than there are on the backhand side. The backhand is not hit as hard. It is not nearly as big a weapon. So the runaround forehand, turning backhands into forehands, is a logical strategy to develop with players from a very young age. And then having a good serve and good serve technique at a young age so that all through that development pathway, you're ahead of that curve is very, very important. But the other part is the return of serve. You know, if you were to put me on a panel or on a debate and say, Craig, you have to debate whether the return of serve will help you win more matches and developing that than the serve, I'll take that. I can make a very good argument for the return of serve. You know, we are currently in the golden age of the returner in our sport. The, the, of all the players from 1991 to 2016 in the men, uh, I studied this on the ATP tour, of all those players that finished number one in the world, so Andy Murray last year and, and Roger Federer and Novak and, and Rafa, all the way back to 91, six years that have, that have produced the most prolific return numbers in our game have been the last six years in a row. The -hmm. best serving years in our sport were back in the 90s. I think it's, you know, out of the last 12 years, there's only one of those last 12 years where we've had um, one of the leading serve years. So, you know, whether it's, you know, people want to blame the balls or the court or, you know, the speed of the court or the rackets or whatever, you know, it's, it's not a, a time to blame. It's a time to just understand the reality of our sport. We're very much involved in the returning side, being more proficient, but we are not mirroring that in our 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s. There's, there's just, it's just not practice, and there's just way, way, way too many errors there. And do the numbers hold up male and female? Yeah, great question. So in... In so many ways, you know, I, I do, especially at slams because I have access, you know, here at the U.S. Open, I have amazing access from IBM to all the, the, the men's numbers and the women's numbers. What would surprise you, if, you know, if I was to show you 100 different analytics between men's tennis and women's tennis, they would almost always be the same. Very, very, very similar. The only thing that's really different in our sport is the amount of men that can really hit a hard serve, a first serve. But also understand on the women's side, Serena Williams' average first serve, or excuse me, her hardest first serve, she hits a harder first serve than Novak does. She hits a harder mm-hmm. first serve than Rafa does. Or Leighton Hewitt, or these other, you know, David Ferrer, Yanko Tipsarovic, all of these leading players in our game. Serena hits a harder first serve than them, but there are very few Serenas in our sport. But when you look at, you know, for example, last year, I looked at, uh, in the first round, forehand winners versus backhand winners. Only first round, 
for the men, it was 65% of all winners in the first round, forehands versus backhands, were forehands. For the women and the men, it was identical. 65% for the men, 65% for the women. It's identical. In baseline points one, it's going to be around 46% for the men. It's going to be 47% for the women. Australian Open this year, um, net points one, 65% for the men, 65% for the women. So I don't, you know, so Craig, you've got to go coach a 12-year-old boy or a 12-year-old girl. I am coaching those two kids exactly the same way. There is no such thing as the women's game and the men's game and the way the tactics are organized. They're, they're, they're blending together, they're coming together, um, and in almost all the metrics, they're basically identical. Can you talk a little bit about how important stroke production, technique, footwork are compared to the tactical piece? Because, you know, you your focus on your website is mostly on the tactical. Uh, you know, right. I, I see very little on the technical side or the footwork side. But as a coach, obviously, you have to teach those things to a player. At what point do you say, you know what, you're as good technically as you're going to be, and Mm -hmm. now it's time to focus solely on your understanding of how to win points and how to win matches? Yeah. Let's look at the top ten players in the world. Let's look at the men. Roger's forehand looks different than Rafa's forehand. And Rafa's forehand looks different than Novak's forehand. And they look different than Stan's forehand. And Marin Cilic's forehand. And Thomas Burdich's forehand. And David Goffin's forehand. They all look different. And they all are different. So that's a very important starting point for coaches to understand is that there's more than one way to hit, to be successful in tennis, hitting a forehand and hitting the ball. What we've got to get away from is the idea that there is only one way of where the racket should be prepared back and how the racket should flow and where the energy should be. You just have to open your eyes and look at the leading players that are making millions of dollars and having unbelievable success in our sport. They can hit the ball differently. So that's number one. Number two, if you sent me a young junior, 12 years of age, in order to understand the patterns of play and develop those patterns of play, you must first have the tools to execute them. So the first thing I'm going to do is look for simple, clean technique and build that first. Uh, So the the technique side of it, yes, it's important. Absolutely. And it's way important. I mean, it's, it's the job. It's the number one role of a junior coach is to first and foremost make sure their player has clean, simple, repeatable technique. So, you know, you go along to these tournaments and see 14, 16, 18-year-old kids with horrible technique. It's like, you know, we want to blame the kid. Oh, this kid didn't, you know, learn how to hit this properly. No, when they first started, they didn't, the coach wasn't able to impart that clean technique efficiently enough. And that's their number one job. So I always start with clean, repeatable simple technique but in saying that there comes a stage and it's almost like you know how put you know is consistency overrated you say Craig you know how can you possibly ask that no one in the history of our sport has questioned consistency but at some stage when we're developing that 12 year old 
their technique becomes solid enough that it doesn't fall apart. What we also must understand is that we play a sport of errors. So when you look even at the Grand Slam level, you know, a good average to understand is that around 70% of all points in tennis are going to end in an error. And at the junior levels, it could be as high as 80%. So the reality is errors are going to occur. We want errors to occur more than anything else. You know, when you've got winners, forced errors, and unforced errors, forcing errors is number one. So you want to do something that makes the opponent miss. So your kids, no matter what technique they have, are still going to miss. That's part of the game. And then the next thing to factor in that, you know, the, the saying that I, that I like to impart, you know, in this conversation is how you hit the ball matters, where you hit it matters more. So at some stage, when all of these juniors become proficient, not fantastic, but they just become proficient enough to play our sport, that their technique is solid, we're seeing the same swing path again and again and again, you then, as a coach, move a little bit away from how to hit the ball, and you start, you start working on where to hit the ball. And even, let's say you, you bought a 12-year-old girl to me. Okay, work on her forehand technique. Well, I would get a basket of balls and I would go over there and first and foremost, level one is just show me your forehand without a racket. No racket. So it's just her arm. And then, you know, level two in the progression will be, okay, you've got your arm and the racket. So we're just swinging. We'll see whether you can do that. Then what I do is I'll throw them a ball, but I want the ball to go past them. I just want them to shadow and mimic the shot with the right timing, but they don't hit the ball yet to see whether things fall apart there. And then the next level of the progression is, okay, let's hit it. And then the next level is maybe we hit it over the net. And the next progression, maybe I, I move further apart. But as they're working on their forehand, I will have them stand slightly in the ad court. I will put a target down slightly in the ad court on the other side, nice and deep. And say, okay, we're going to develop your forehand, but I want you to hit it from here to there. I want you to hit it to the opponent's back end. I want the focus of your shot to be deep. And in order to get it over there, the ball has to be higher over the net. And so you're naturally working on height. You're naturally working on depth. You're naturally working on strategy of pushing back to the opponent's back end. You're naturally working on a runaround forehand. Um, but you're almost doing it subconsciously because the player's thinking only technique, but I've already instilled several of these um, strategy items into the drill as well without them really knowing it. So, yes, you can te- teach technique and tactics together, and, and you absolutely should from a young age. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, it, so have you looked at court positioning too? Does that factor in to the tactical piece of it? It's I know massive. you're a big – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, court position is massive. We – we see it through um, heat maps from Hawkeye. So a heat map will show more red where a player moves and more green where they don't move. And then we, we see a breakdown of, say, a 60% versus 40%, where a player will make contact with the ball 60% behind the baseline and 40% inside the baseline. And you start looking at who wins matches and who loses, and you start looking at who plays more up in the court and more, behind, and more back, and almost without fail the players that are winning matches have superior core position. They play closer to the baseline. They feel the magnetism of the baseline. They, they'll venture to the net. You know, the average win percentage in the baseline is a losing one. It's, you know, 46 
always, whereas the average win percentage at the net's around 65, 66%. So, you know, we have this idea in our mind that, that the net is a bad thing and serve and volley is a bad thing, but they're actually wonderful things. They're great things to do. Um, finishing points of the net is fantastic. Uh, from a you know from a strategy standpoint and, and just the simple analytics and the math of of where you win points. So um, I'm always talking about players' core position. I'm using examples from the pro tour. I'm showing them the heat maps. I'm showing them this this relationship. And um, you know I, I hear every now and you know tennis kind of buzz phrases and, and and things that are hot. And you know as you talked a little bit about the Spanish method, that was hot a few years ago. Um, you know, one thing that I, I start hearing popping up in conversations now is coaches talking about buying time, creating mm-hmm. space, and letting the ball drop. And it's just flat out wrong. Buying time and creating space and, 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 and letting the ball drop is all about moving backwards. Um, here's the difference. And they'll say, well, Nadal's back. Well, here's the difference. And, and, I've, and I've got it on my Twitter feed where I've got a shot sequence of Nadal. You look at Nadal hitting a return to serve, and the guy is almost taking out the linesman at the back of the court. He is insanely far back for that. But you look at the second shot of the sequence, and he's that far back because he wants the ball to slow down, and he's that strong that he can still hit the ball with great depth from that far back. Hardly any junior in the world can do that. But Nadal does it by standing back on the return of serve, but then have a look at him on the second shot. He is up around the baseline in the third and the fourth shot. I did an analysis of Nadal at the Australian Open this year of the six matches that he played to the final. So it was a preview for the final against Roger. He hit, I, I believe it was around 60% of his winners standing inside the baseline. So... Nadal is temporarily at times far back, but a lot of the times he's prowling the baseline. He's always looking to move up. He's always looking to improve his core position. And, you know, when he goes to the net, he has a wonderful win percentage up there as well. So how important is it for our juniors to learn the serve volley game or to learn how to move forward, um, whether it's, you know, when they're, if they're serving and volleying or just during a point, taking advantage of short balls and finishing at the net. It's, and from, from listening to you, it sounds like that's huge. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, and again, you know, what I've done in this research, and my number one goal is to remove opinion and guesswork. You know, early on as a younger coach, I would go to conferences and talk with other coaches and, you know, and even now, you know, you go to Facebook and Facebook is full of these tennis coaching, you know, forums where there's mm-hmm. just opinion after opinion and, you know, there's no data, there's no numbers, there's nothing backing up. But when coaches say, I believe in my opinion on this, it's like, it, it, you know, it, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to, to, to figure out what's going on because it's, nothing's based on fact. When you look right. just at raw numbers of serve and volley, it's the number one of all, of baseline play, of, of, of approach and volley play, and of, and of uh, and serve and volley. It produces the highest win percentage by far. It is a magnificent thing to do. Now, I am not saying that all of the young boys and girls in America need to become Pat Rafter tomorrow, but I am saying that 
it needs to be one of the elements of their game. And there's a variety of reasons you can serve in volley. You can do it just for the fact that you want to come forward and create pressure from uh, at the front of the court to the returner. If you've got a good serve, you know, I, I figured this out when I was working with Kevin Anderson, taking from outside the top 150 into the top 50. We went to Toronto, and in back-to-back matches, he had to play Sam Query, who was about 20 in the world at the time, and he beat him in three sets, and he played Nadal. Um, and, and lost uh, in a very close match, a night match down center court. And what Kevin was doing was he was rocking down these big first serves against Cleary and Nadal, and both guys, correctly and smartly, were just slicing and chipping the return back, and they're chipping it back nice and high and really, really slow and getting it deep. And all of a sudden, Kevin's hit this amazing first serve, and his next shot, he's standing back, deep in, um, near the baseline with a ball that has no power. The ball's, the ball's, the second bounce of this ball is almost right next to where the first bounce was. So the, the opponent is very correctly and smartly removed all the power out of the point and just are now starting a baseline rally, but Kevin is not the favorite at all. So when you have players that chip returns and slice returns, they're going to be coming back. It's a perfect time to serve in volley. If you're down love 40, perfect time to serve in volley and throw a monkey wrench in and create, you know, a different look and feel and freak the opponent out a little bit. So, you know, I could go on and on about, you know, the, the, the myriad of different benefits of serving volley rather than just go, well, I'm just going to run forward at the front of the court and see how, see how I do. So serving volley is valid. The numbers, I've never once seen the average serving volley points one at a Grand Slam be below 60%, let alone 50%. You know, 50% is our break-even. I've never once seen the average baseline points one over 50%. I first started looking at it at the U.S. Open with the men in 2012. Only seven men, seven, had a win percentage in baseline play. This year at the Australian Open, Roger Federer won the Australian Open. He had a losing record in baseline points one. Serena won the tournament had a losing record in baseline points one. Very, very difficult. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Well, we've been talking quite a bit about what it takes to win in tennis. And Mm -hmm. another one of those kind of hot topics these days is process over results, right? Being a process-based coach and being in a process-based development program. At what point, in your opinion, and based on the numbers, because let's keep it on the numbers, at what point do you say, all right, now it's time to switch from process to results. We've got to start looking at, at your win percentage. And how do you transition from being a process based development coach? to results-oriented, and, and let's say we're talking about juniors who are aiming to play college tennis because, yeah. let's face it, that's the majority of the kids in, in this country. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, th- th- that whole, it, it's such a gray area. Just even saying the word process to me, I'm like, holy cow, what, you know, what are we actually talking about here? What is the process? And, you know, this just opens the door for coaches to talk for a month about their opinions and ideas and, you know, the romantic side of tennis. And, and it's just, 
you know, it, it's not focused. I mean, ultimately, let's win some tennis matches. Let's keep our kids in the sport. Let's make it fun for them. Let's make it enjoyable. But you know what? Winning matches will go a long way to doing that as well. So there's really only one way to get this done effectively. There's only one. And, we, and, it, and it is going to take flipping the order of how we work on things. So traditional tennis, and again, for, for a lot of coaches, you know, we've got to give them a pass here because, again, as I, I said at the start, tennis just hasn't been a sport that has extracted the numbers out like the other sports have. We are very late to the game in finding the real numbers that matter. So because we haven't had metrics, because we haven't seen average win percentages, because we haven't known the average rally length, because we haven't known that the number one rally length in tennis is a rally of one, because we haven't known that if you win the zero through four shot rally length, you're going to win over 90% of your matches, we've never known these, this data. So the order has been incorrect as a result of this. We're, and the order is practice court first, match court second. The order is let's go to the practice court and work on your forehand in isolation without any idea of strategy and just go play a match and see how it all goes. And then we go back to the practice court and try and get better and try and be more consistent. And, you know, this creates the, the um, scenario where, you know, we know these kids, wow, they look good in practice. Wow, they're fantastic, you know, when we're feeding balls out of the hand. Wow, they're so consistent that they can't win a match. And the reason is they're working on the end of the point rather than the beginning of the point. So the new pathway and the only pathway that really matters is let's go play a match. Let's see what you're doing well. Let's see what's broken. Let's see your weaknesses. And then let's go to the practice court and specifically work on these patterns of play. That's the key. As a young coach learning my craft, I, I remember making this mistake so much where, um, you know, I was in Australia, I was at the Wodonga Tennis Center, 52 courts, I had a roll of 30 grass courts, and I'm the only coach. I mean, I'm like a mad scientist over there trying all these, you know, different things. Does this work? Does that work? And quite often, you know, I'd, I'd have a new player come in. And Monday, I'm like, okay, great. You look fantastic. Let's work on your forehand. Tuesday is about backhands. Wednesdays, we're hitting serves. Thursday is your net game. Fridays, why don't you go play a match? Maybe have a look at you. And I watch them play the match, and all of a sudden, the emotions come out. The mental side comes out. They're so wrapped up in themselves. They don't see where the opponent's strengths and weaknesses are. They're not figuring out the opponent. They're not making adjustments, and they get killed in the match. They look fantastic Monday through Thursday on the practice court, and they looked horrible Friday in the match court. So now, any player that I work with at any level of the game, the moment they say, Craig, you know, I'd like to work with you, the first thing I do is say, I want to see you play a practice set, and I'm going to video it. It's the very first thing. So now I can watch their body language. I can figure out their thinking process. I can understand what's going through their head, and I talk to them. Where are you serving? Why are you serving? I understand what they're doing based on the score, and I can figure out their tennis IQ, and I can figure out exactly how to structure the practice court to improve their strengths and to minimize their weaknesses. The match court must come first. Understand the match court, and then the practice court becomes organized with those patterns of play. So that puts the onus on either, A, the coach to actually attend matches, 
and or B, the parent, to videotape the matches and make sure they have, you know, video angles and things that the maybe they've discussed with the coach ahead of time, what the coach likes to see, and then get that video back to the coach for analysis. But in either event, it requires the coach to do some work outside of the lesson court. Yes and no. Yes and no. In a broad sense, yes. In a specific sense, no. And what I mean here is that, remember I said when a player comes to see me, I would to play a practice match. Well, mm-hmm. coaches, coaches give lessons. Coaches give one-hour lessons. And we give way too many lessons where we're feeding a ball out of the basket, working only on a stroke with no strategic element to it at all. What I want coaches to start doing is, let's say they're coaching Johnny, invite another boy over. They can either share the lesson and pay half of the lesson, or you just coach one of them. Both work. But go and play a practice set and hang your camera up during that practice set, during that lesson, and stand behind them and talk to them and say, where are you serving? Why are you serving there? Where do you want the ball to come back? What's your plan for this point? You're up 3-1-30-love. Is this the time to go for a primary pattern, or is it time to surprise to a secondary area? Teach the player how to win. I was on court in Germany just a couple of months ago, and I had two leading boys that were uh, number one and two in Bayern, which is that southern state in Germany around Munich, the number one and two in 16s. And the father was on the side of the court. And I, and I worked with both kids at the same time. It was about an hour and a half lesson. And I was constantly stopping it and talking to the kids and bringing the kids over. Why are you serving there? Where's the ball coming back? During the point, a lot of times I'd say, freeze. Put the racket down where you're standing. Look, look at your distance from the baseline. Why didn't you move up on that ball? Why didn't you attack the backhand? And have this back and forth discussion and ask so many questions of the kids. And at the end of the lesson, I, I had you know, probably 25 leading German coaches um, sitting watching this. And I also had the father of one of the boys, the, the, the number one um, junior in 16s in, in Bayern. So the, uh, one of the coaches put his hands up. And he says, Craig, you know, I like that lesson a lot. It's fantastic. But he goes, a lot of parents are not going to like this lesson because parents are paying for the kid to hit a million balls. They want to see the kid work on their consistency. They want to see a lot of balls hit. And they want to see, the, you know, sweat on the kid and, 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 you know, and working hard. They walk off the court and the kid's exhausted. The parent's happy. And I said, you know what? This is a different lesson, and you need to educate the parents that you're not giving that lesson. That, that lesson will still exist. But I turned around to the parent, and I said to the dad, I said, your kid is not sweating. Your kid has not hit a million balls. But what has your kid got out of today? He's learned serve patterns. He's learned return patterns. He's learned when to go for a winner and when not to. He's learned that defense goes cross-court. He's learned to understand the opponent. And I'm like, I'm like dad. Are you happy with today's lesson? Are you unhappy today with, with today's lesson? And the dad said, my kid learned how to play tennis today. Not just hit the ball, but where it should go and why it should go there. And he goes, I love that lesson. Please do more of those. So mm. it's an education process. And, and it, yep. again, we can handle all of this on the practice court first. I love that. And I, you know, it's, 
Obviously, the people that are taking the time to listen to Parenting Aces podcast and read the articles on our site and people that are following you and reading information, they get it, right? These are the parents and the coaches that get it. They understand that, you know, these are the types of elements that have to be present in order for their child to develop into the type of tennis player that is going to allow them options in terms of college, in terms of whether or not they turn pro, whatever it is they want to do with the sport. But, you know, unfortunately, the people not listening, not reading all of this stuff are the bigger group still. And so I think, you know, you and I and and the rest of the people, and I'm not lumping myself in with you in terms of the work I do, but I'm just saying that you know, all of us have to keep sharing this information if we want the level of the game to improve. And, you know, I think it's that's why social media is so awesome because I can post something and somebody can share it and you can post something and I can send it out to my my little audience. And, and this is all helping the sport to get better and to grow. And I, I think it's just fantastic. I, I love the work you do. I, we're coming to the end of our hour, and, and I really I want to give you a chance, Craig, to talk a little more specifically about game plan, um, how people can get it, what it costs, and what they get. Yeah. Um, and just going back to your last comment, um, it's, I think it's normal. It, I expect that the vast majority of people are still – you know, haven't discovered this or haven't uncovered it or, or don't, haven't seen the light yet. I, I think that's probably normal. And I think, you know, that what we're doing day by day, little by little, I think that's just how change is affected. You know, through my website, there's people emailing literally from all over the world that buy my products, whether it's Brazil or Germany or, or Russia or Australia, it doesn't matter where they're from, little by little, they're getting it and they're figuring it out. So, you know, we're not going to change... Uh, you know, roam in a day here, but you know, I, I think, I think over the next five years, I think we can make great change and, and make great progress. And all that I'm looking to do is to create a more efficient and a smarter practice court, so these juniors out there have a better opportunity for more success in tennis. Um, game plan. Again, specifically, we look at twelves, fourteens, sixteens, eighteens. In college, we break it down into three different levels, lines five and six, three and four, one and two. Then we have challenger level data, which doesn't exist, then top 100 data and top 10. So there's 10 separate levels, and we look at so many things, serving, returning, rallying, rally length. And what this is all about is looking at the progressions. So I just actually put um, something up on my blog right now, uh, this morning, right before we, we talked, as a little bit of an example, and it's all about um, second serve points one. So my question yesterday to the people that subscribed to my blog was, how, at what point does a second serve move from being a liability, which means winning under 50% of the points, to an asset, which is over 50% of the points? So I sent this question out yesterday and uh you know for the boys and for the girls and got a, a ton of responses you know most of them are saying well it's pretty high up for both girls and boys well you know it, it, it's live on my blog right now 
and you're going to see that for the male players under 12s, the average, and again, this is national level events. This is not, you know, just in your town or just in your district or just in your state. These are good kids. These are national level kids. The win percentage for the boys in under 12s on second serves is 43%. Under 14s, 44%. Under 16s, 46 Under 18s, 47 They're underwater. It is a losing prospect. So now we just have to walk to the practice court and say, okay, are you actually doing specific work on your second serve? And the answer is almost no. Tons of forehands, tons of backhands. But the second serve work is, are they working on the motion and the flow and the energy? Are they working on their toss? Are they working on where it should land? Are they working on topspin or slice or something even a little bit flatter? And especially as the coach on the other side, you know, letting that serve go by and then banging a ball so that they've got to deal with the offensive return from the second serve so that they're, they're pressured by time with that serve plus one shot. So a lot of times the second serve is lost, not because the second serve, but because of the first shot after the second serve. So it's not and, – and once we move on to college um, – it's still under 50% at all three levels of college. It's not even to the challenger level where it becomes even. And the top 100 finally at 52% start winning more second serve points than they, than they lose. And then you look at the ladies. Out of those 10 levels, there is not one, not one, not even the top 10 ladies in the world have a winning record on second serves. It's one of the biggest reasons the ladies are losing matches and you go to the practice court and they're almost never working on it. Australian Open this mm. year, the average for the ladies for the entire tournament, second serve points, one is 46%. It's under 50. It's, it, it, wow. it's just horrible. So, my, so this is what game plan will do. First of all, it will educate you and say, is the second serve important? It's critical. How are we doing with it? We're doing horribly. Are you practicing it? Not at all. Let's change it. <laughs> let's go and work. I love it. Second and let's have 12-year-old girls do about five minutes of serves. We don't want to blow their shoulder out. But how about you do five minutes of second serve work and then go to the other side of the corner and do five minutes of second serve return work and blast that second serve deep down the middle of the court and rush the opponent, then come back and do another five minutes of second serve work. So let's, you know, here's the deal is that we're not going to add more time to these elements that we find that are very critical. We're not going to turn all of a sudden, coaches aren't going to go out there and say, we've been doing our lessons, but we've just uncovered through game plan that the second serve is so insanely important and we're doing so poorly at it. We need to do an extra 10 minutes a day on it so our lessons are now an hour and 10 minutes. That's not going to happen. What's got to happen is compromise. 10 minutes. Be taken oh, on the Craig, I lost you. Wait, hang on. I lost you there. So you said we're not going to make the lesson longer. Instead, we're going to compromise. Exactly. So what we're overdosing on is forehands and backhands. And what gets almost no attention is, is the second serve. So we're going to take 10 minutes of that lesson. Uh, you know, it, it's, let's say, for example, you know, generally 50 minutes are uh, spent on ground strokes and 10 minutes on, on the rest. Well, let's move that to 40 minutes on ground strokes and let's move it to 30. Let's move it to 20. And let's work on our serve for 15 minutes. Let's work on our return for 15 minutes. Let's work on approach and volley for, 
you know, for five minutes. Let's work on serving volley for five minutes. Let's work on specific patterns of play rather than just hitting forehands and backhands cross-court all day long. That's what game plan, and there's just, exa- there's pages and pages and pages of examples of exactly this on the reality of this development pathway and what's working in the younger game and what's not and how we fix it. Fantastic. So when somebody actually purchases game plan and I'm just looking on your site, the normal price is $149.95, but through the two weeks of the U.S. Open, there's a 20% discount. So it's $119.96. Great time to buy. What do I get when I spend that $119.96? Yeah, the, all of the, uh, the entire eight products on the website will all be all have a 20% discount. So there's other ones there that are very specific with strategy as well. But when you, when you go to purchase, you are asked to create a username and a password. You enter that information. Then you purchase the product. And what, how it now lives is the product lives on the website. You are now logged in through your username and password and pages that you previously could not see that has all the information on it and now open to you because of the purchase. So you will always come to BrainGameTennis.com to see it. There'll be a video of me discussing it. A typical page will have a video of me discussing the overall theme of what's going on. It will have tables in there showing the progression of 12s, 14s, 16s, 18s. It will have um, extra data from... the. the from the slams, from different tournaments, and it will have an overview at the end. It's called the bottom line on exactly what you should do. It's distilled information at the bottom of it. So it's a combination of video, of writing, of tables, of text, and and a call to action at the bottom. And, you know, game plan is going to be um, around, you know, 25 to 30 pages um, of specific data, and it will keep getting added to. So it's not like – think of it kind of like a book. I buy this book, it's specific, it has a start, it has an end, but with the products on the website, they get updated and they get added to as well. Fantastic. Well, Craig, thank you so, so much for taking time out because I know you are in major prep mode at the Open and we so appreciate you sharing your expertise with us, your knowledge with us. I'm really excited about this whole game plan product and learning more about it as it develops and I really want to encourage my listeners to check it out Uh, these next two weeks are the perfect time to buy you get an awesome 20% off and you get access to all this data and and the specific strategies that Craig's been discussing as a parent if you purchase this you can share it with your child's coach and you know, hopefully help your child really utilize his or her lesson time more efficiently and more productively. And I, I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. I just think it's a phenomenal thing that you're doing here. So, again, thank you so much, Craig. Lisa, thank you. Great spending time and discussing it, and uh, I wish you all the best, and I look forward to seeing you at the Open. Perfect. I'll see you there. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Parenting Aces podcast with Craig O'Shaughnessy of Brain Game Tennis. As always, the links that were mentioned during the podcast are available in our show notes, so be sure and check those out either on parentingaces.com 
on Libsyn, on iTunes, or wherever you take in your podcasts. And I also want to just put it out there that we are looking for additional sponsors for the Parenting Aces podcast. So if you or anyone you know is interested in connecting with us, working with us to keep the podcast on the air and to help it grow, please reach out to me. You can contact me by email, lisa at parentingaces.com, or you can reach me through any of the various social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you are, I am probably there as well. So I look forward to hearing from you. And again, just a reminder, I will be at the U.S. Open September 6th through 9th. So if you're going to be there, please reach out and let's find the time to connect. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time on the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, visit us online at ParentingAces.com. As always, a huge thank you to our sponsor, TennisBalls.com.